Have you ever wanted to have the guts to quit your nine to five job and go travel the world? Well, today's guest did that. She quit a career in law to travel the world and become a digital entrepreneur. She's an author, a businesswoman, and her most recent book is called 25 Ways to Work at Home, which is perfect in today's current COVID climate. You may know her through her Instagram, Jen on a Jet Plane. Ladies and gentlemen, Jen Riss. Welcome to One Moment, Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. How would you describe yourself as a lawyer or a a digital nomad influencer? I would say lawyer turned travel blogger. Okay. Travel blogger, not Instagram influencer slash genius. (laughs) (laughs) No, because I think that that limits you to Instagram's profile. And then if anything ever happens to them, then your business goes away. Whereas as a blogger, I may have social media profiles like Instagram or TikTok or Twitter, um, but that's not my business model outright. Okay. So Explain sort of how you got into the travel aspect of your life um, to start off with, because you were working as a lawyer quite happily, weren't you? Sure. Uh, I mean, as happy as anybody can work as a lawyer, I think. Um, (laughs) Are you regretting the degree now? No, I, I would never regret the degree because I really do appreciate the prestige of the community and being able to have that legal knowledge. I think it's come in really um, just it's been useful for me in my life, but it's not necessarily the path that I wanted to take, which is why I'm not practicing law anymore. So even when I had first started practicing as a young associate, I was blogging on the side and I was submitting freelance articles to Elite Daily, you know, as early back as 2014, um, because that was what interested me more than the day-to-day tasks of being an attorney. What were you blogging about? Travel? Uh, No. So actually travel didn't even come up because I was a young associate. So I barely had time to go anywhere. Right. Like (laughs) um, I had to be in the office all of the time. So I really didn't go to very many places. I actually had um, studied abroad in law school for that reason, because I hadn't really taken any other time in my life up until that point to go anywhere, really. So uh, when I was first starting out, I was writing about lifestyle pieces and just general how to manage being in your 20s and um, just being a young professional and trying to make your way in the workforce and those kind of just general lifestyle pieces. And then from there, I was contacted by a magazine that saw my work on this bigger platform and wanted me to write specifically for their travel vertical. Wow. So a hobby. So they actually chased you, like you were just doing this as a hobby and then someone tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, we want you to write for us. Yes, but still on a freelance basis. And that's why I think it's important for people to understand that being a digital entrepreneur means that you're going to have a lot of different income streams. And while I love all the freelance work that I'm given, I understand that it's not necessarily steady uh, because you have to constantly be pitching because different payout schedules, things of the sort. So I take it as something that's a bonus when it comes along. And for me, I definitely wanted to widen my portfolio. So when I had that opportunity, even though I didn't know much about travel at the moment, other than my, you know, 
um, summer that I spent in Sydney, of all places, um, uh, I really just wanted to uh, just make the most out of, of the knowledge that I did have. And so I was able to grow a blog and a following in that sense. Where did you study abroad? Was it Sydney? Uh, yes. For six weeks, I worked for the Australian Law Reform Commission. I'm interested to know if it was a gradual dawning or a bit of epiphany in regards to changing your lifestyle quite dramatically. I think a gradual dawning, right? So as far back as when I first found that what I really enjoyed was the hours that I got to sneak in work to do those breaking news stories for Elite Daily, right? Because I enjoyed the thrill of just kind of getting the mundane lawyer tasks out of the way and then taking the rest of that time um, to write an article to get something out. I actually wrote something like 50 different articles for Elite Daily back when I was just a young like law clerk, pending bar clearance, all of that. Um, and I really realized then that that was what I enjoyed more. I just didn't kind of know how to pursue it. I think I was already on my set path and, and you have a degree and you have a you know, model that you're supposed to follow in terms of what success looks like. And so I didn't realize at the time that really what had even made me interested in law to begin with was writing and making, you know, storytelling and that that was always what was my core competency. It was just something that I was kind of using in a more traditional and known path that at its essence didn't, didn't appeal to me. Like I read contracts, I read cases. And I mean, sometimes I just roll my eyes from how dull it is. I just, it really is not for me. And I think when you are passionate about something, it's the opposite. So at what stage did you say, I'm going to do 50, was it 20 countries in 20 weeks or something? What was the, it was some extraordinary amount of trips that you took? For an American, but I don't think necessarily for anyone else, right? I think, uh, so mine was 12 trips in 12 months. That was the challenge, um, which definitely as a practicing attorney was unheard of because we get on average about 10 vacation days a year. Um, so, you know, assuming that each trip is going to be at least two days, you're already double, you know, twice past your allocated time. So um, it was definitely a challenge and it was something I wasn't able to do until I moved into the nonprofit world where they at least had bank holidays incorporated, you know, into the year. So in addition to the 10 days off, I also had 4th of July and, you know, MLK Day and all of these other national holidays that were bank holidays, but that lawyers never traditionally take off. And so when I had that extra little bit of flexibility, then I could really take advantage and, you know, pair up long weekends with an extra day or two, take red eye flights um, and just take advantage of any kind of fair deal that came up. That's how I ended up in Cuba. Um, and so I took 20 trips total that year. That's exhausting, 20 trips. <laughs> Why did you say for an American that's that's a lot? Is it because cause I would say that that's a lot for anybody unless you're sort of in the in Europe where it's like, you know, an hour and you're in another country. Um, why would you say? Is it because Americans don't travel all that much? Yes, and then they don't have the time to travel. They feel guilty when they do, and when they do it's for significantly less time than – their um, other counterparts, right? So somebody who travels from overseas might travel for three weeks, a month when they go somewhere because they think they really want to see a place. An American thinks six days, that's a long vacation and I need to get back ASAP because work has been calling me this whole time. Hmm. That's that's interesting. I, th I thought you were going to say more of the distance to have to travel to get somewhere, and or, which is what it is in Australia. Like we're 
you know, you fly eight hours and you're still in the country. So I thought that that, that was where you're going to go rather than the holiday, the holiday aspect of things. That's interesting. I think we're pretty well situated. Like if you can get to Europe overnight, um, you can get from the West Coast to Asia, you know, within eight or nine hours. So it, we're definitely not in the same, I think people definitely underestimate how vast Australia is. Um, so I appreciate that and how long it takes you to travel anywhere. We No, we're lucky. I think we're, we're accessible and that's not the prohibiting factor. I think sometimes flight costs can be. Um, so that's definitely one thing that people, you know, end up just doing road trips or local trips for hoping that they'll save money, thinking that international or traveling to other countries from the U.S. is really cost prohibitive. So how did you fund the trips? Because I would have imagined moving to a non-profit um, aspect of your law career would have been a drop in income. It was slightly. And then a up in benefits, like a raise in benefits. So it evened out total with, you know, insurance and different um, retirement plans and things of the sort. But so I wasn't, I was kind of on equal footing, but still not necessarily excelling, right? Because I mean, what, what people think of in terms of the really successful lawyer is the partner or the person who's at a top 100 firm. Um, and as somebody, I think that 80, 90% of lawyers just really don't fall in that category. They're more like, you know, uh, decent, I would say, but still, I, I knew people that were working at a firm for more than 10 years and still making, you know, eighty, ninety thousand dollars at a small or mid-sized firm. Um, so for me, I was able to supplement my income because I realized very early on when I first asked for a raise at my first law job that even if you do get granted something like a five thousand dollar raise, it really only comes out to an extra hundred dollars or so a paycheck, and that does not get me to and from all of these places. So I had to get creative and that's when I first started on the online space and really with digital entrepreneurship and just kind of learning a little bit more about that. And I had my first job was teaching English online um, and I was able to do that in the mornings before going to work and that would make me an extra maybe $1,500 or so a month. And then with that, I could plan different trips. I found really cheap flights. Hmm. So you actually started off in a completely different avenue to fund like the teaching. Like that wasn't even, is that something that you sort of had to have thought about before or was that just, I'm going to need to look up what I can earn money doing to fund this? Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't even an interest of mine and I feel guilty sometimes because I know that people apply to work with the company that are teachers and, and sometimes don't get the position. I really think it's a luck of the draw. Um, but I took it as, you know, a sign that this was, an online income stream that presented itself to me right at a time when I was looking to fund this challenge that I had taken it, you know, so I just went with it and I didn't like it. I had to get up early every single day. Um, <laughs> so I'm talking like 4am, 5am. Oh, and goodness. so, yeah, and that sounds, it's, I mean, it's fine the first week or so, but after a while you're really resentful. Um, and so you just want to sleep. <laughs> and you're speaking to someone that loves to sleep. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you understand, you feel my pain. And so yeah, I'm not a morning person. Don't speak to me before I've had two cups of coffee. <laughs> and then on top of that, you have to give your full energy in the morning, right? Because you have to wake up so energetic and ready to like, you know, enthuse a child about learning a foreign language that is the equivalent of speaking Chinese to them. 
Um, and so it's really um, a tough one. And that was a sacrifice that I made because I knew that it was going to pay off and that I was going to not regret it if I was in one of these fabulous locations and really having this year that I had set out to have. What age group were you teaching? Um, so I would say between five to 13 years old. Did your experience as a teacher and laying out lesson plans and all that kind of bizzo, I'm not a teacher, <laughs> would you, <laughs> it's very technical, bizzo, um, would, did that help you in terms of how you would structure your digital entrepreneurship content in regards to engaging? Because kids' attention spans quite short. Yeah. And so, now so adults are as well. <laughs> absolutely, right? We're used to 15-second increments at best before people lose our attention. Um, so I think, and that's something I've, I've been doing now with TikTok as I've moved on to a new platform and learning how to keep people's attentions for the span of a minute. You really have to do a lot of short video clips. Um, so yeah, surprisingly, it has been very helpful. And that's something that as I've started to do more educational content, like I did a webinar on, on kind of how I was able to grow my TikTok so fast. And I'm going to be planning some upcoming webinars and courses on self-publishing. Um, and so I think that it makes me more just kind of under like it just definitely helps to be familiar with the educational field I mean I think like most people that excel at something can't necessarily teach it and I mean at the same time I don't want to put myself down right like those who can't do teach I get so weary of saying that phrase um but I feel like I could teach it very well and so maybe that makes me a little bit more accessible than some of the other maybe bigger counterparts in the space, right? Because when you're in social media, you're always comparing yourself to the next big bad. Um, and so that's something that for me, I've had to tell myself as an entrepreneur that I've had people really respond well to learning from me. And that I think I've, you know, I've, at this point, I had two years of experience with um, teaching every single day. So, you know, 3000 plus classes. So something had to have stuck. Um, if I can make somebody who doesn't even speak the language stick around for 25 minutes. Um, and I think that that's, that's definitely the value of understanding that even if it's not a job that's your end goal, it can still have something to offer you and something that you can learn from it that can come and surprise you along the way. Like I really believe everything is put in your path for a reason. And for me, this has been a lot of different skill sets that as a digital entrepreneur would have been hard to learn on my own. With the digital entrepreneur side of things, did you learn it as you sort of went in terms of self-discovery or did you actually actively initially seek out courses which people can do with you now? A mix of things. So I, I think actually a big turning point for me was attending my first travel conference. And I recommend that people get active in their industry and in their genre and their field because it will make it feel like a business. And when you're doing something online, even when I was making, you know, that 1600 the first month, so I knew you can make money online, it didn't feel like I had a business. I was just working and doing some gigs online, right? But once I started looking at my website and my blog and my entire digital presence as my brand, my business, you know, the message I want to portray and seeing how people did this successfully, it was very inspirational. And at the travel conference, it was TBEX. That was the first one I went to. It was in Huntsville, Alabama, 
really random location. Um, and it was fabulous. I took a writing class with um, a really great writer who writes for National Geographic. And we did a whole day, you know, excursion with a small group. And I attended the sessions. And that was where I realized the contrast between the complete lack of interest that I had in law, right? Like rolling my eyes while reading contracts and the absolute interest that I had in every little thing that was being presented at this conference. Like I was front row center, taking notes, really excited for the next session. And I had never been that way in a legal conference. Hmm. Was that conference before or after you decided to do the 12 trips in 12 months, which turned into the 20 trips? It was somewhere in the middle. So in April, that was one of the trips. I'm, I counted it because it required flying to Huntsville and paying for a hotel and all of that. Um, and I wanted to do something for me that really was testing out the waters if I wanted to make this transition. And funnily enough, I mean, my coworkers knew where I was and they knew what I was doing. And so everybody mentioned to me when they came back that they were having a meeting and they were like, oh, we hope Jen isn't like falling in love with a new career. And I was, I was falling in love with a new career. <laughs> <laughs> They're just jealous. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that you hadn't traveled much before you sort of um, started this whole process. How did you go going from not really traveling to then traveling as a, a solo female? Were you, did you have any apprehension in regards to that? I think I had some training. So the two big trips that I took was a high school trip that was two weeks with my mom. And after that trip, my high school graduation trip, it, we went all throughout Europe and I realized that I could plan a better trip than what we had actually paid for people to plan for us. And halfway through the trip, I had a Europe for Dummies book and I was like, mom, we can get to Stonehenge. We can take this trip. We don't need to pay these outrageous fees. Like I can get us there on the train and there's this really cute cafe and all of that. And so I think at right away, I, I love planning and I love researching. And that was something that helped me excel in law. Um, and so I knew that I had that skill from that initial trip to Europe and that I enjoyed that better, that autonomy of doing my own decisions than going with what a tour group organized. I hated tour groups. And then when I went to Australia, I thought that I was going to be going with teachers or another student. And it wasn't until I got on the plane and I'm like, oh, it's just me. <laughs> cool. Um, Australia's I'm, probably the the best place to go though, as a as your first solo trip, because we're pretty, you know, we're we're happy to help anyone. I was so spoiled there. Everybody really took me under uh, their wing at, at the uh, Law Reform Commission. You know, they would take me, I went to trivia nights with them and um, different happy hours and around the different, you know, even nightlife. And it was um, Sydney Wildlife Adventure Zoo. Um, and so a lot of different great experiences that I had there. But it was unexpected. And that was, I like, didn't know so much, right? So I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going for six weeks. Like, I just didn't understand the concept of the fact that they have laundry in Australia. So I just thought I had to bring six weeks worth of clothing. Um, so, <laughs> and so, um, so I came with like four giant suitcases that I then How had. How old a, were you? Um, I was maybe, I would say 21, 22. Um, and so I just, 
four giant suitcases. Like I took every suitcase my family owned and I packed it with all of my belongings. I was, as far as I was concerned, I was moving to Australia. Um, Did your mum not say at one point, hey, they they have washing machines over there as well? I feel like they were equally not in the know because my family was, well, my mom is from Puerto Rico. And so she did it. She, her first trip abroad was with me right after high school and she hasn't traveled really abroad since. So she knew even less than I did. Um, but I quickly learned that that was a mistake when I had to get four big bags up like the second story by myself. Um, oh, no. <laughs> so, um, everything became a lesson learned and those six weeks were you know just trial by fire and somehow throughout the way thanks to the gracious help of all of the Australians and wonderful people who were like are you okay with all of those bags and do you need that many um, <laughs> and, you know it just it worked out and it actually ended up being a wonderful experience I had a bit of a breakdown I think around the halfway mark when I um, just like really was craving American food and um, just to talk to somebody that it wasn't a full you know while they were sleeping because it's a full 12 hour time difference and all of that um, and so I was really homesick but once I crossed the homesick barrier that I think so many people have to just get over that hump I I had a hard time leaving actually I was like oh I have to go back to this hot mess <laughs> so, have you been back I've seen on your Instagram you've done um a lot of Asia and New Zealand have you been back to Australia since I wish because I have friends there they've been waiting for me the opportunity hasn't presented itself because I've been going to where the cheap fares were um, New Zealand I was able to get through travel hacking and so I only paid like $38 to get from Miami to Auckland um, wow. and I it was yeah I had to take advantage um, but I it's I'm hoping to go back soon, if only because I was there for six weeks and only explored a, you know, teensy corner of Australia, what we know to be, you know, the giant continent that has so much more to offer. So I'd love to make it up uh, to the Great Barrier Reef now that I hear is being replenished with everything. Um, and I'd love mm. to make it out to Uluru. Um, yep. And, and, you know, just to see more. I think I really loved it. And I, I'm more equipped now. <laughs> So, so you might need a, a couple of months then in Australia. <laughs> I'm okay with big, that. Yeah, that's fine. You could get a van and just travel around. Oh, my goodness. That sounds like the dream. Yeah, yeah. Your photography on your Instagram is amazing. Is that something that you knew already how to do or is that something that you learned around, along the way? Learned along the way. Definitely went to a photography course at that first travel blogger conference. Um, I'm a learner, right? So I will take advantage of all the free stuff that people offer. I will sign up for every free download. I'll go to every free summit. Like I will, and sometimes it's information overload for most people, but I just take what value I can from it. And I really appreciate it because it's a challenge. And for me, I like challenges. I like learning something new. I think it keeps your brain sharp. And so I started, you know, when I went to my first conference, I was just learning about composition and what you do to even try to take a good photograph. And I remember somebody there trying to explain to me Lightroom. And I was like, you are, I just have no idea what you're saying. I mean, your pictures look gorgeous, but this is, I have no idea what you're saying. And now Thank I you, use Marshall. Lightroom. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. And and it's because I didn't know. And I think you really have to build upon things and give yourself a break and understand that it's, it, it is going to be some, you know, practice and that you're not going to be perfect right from the get go and that you don't have to be. So my first photos weren't phenomenal. Um, you know, I definitely was working with what works and what doesn't. And as over time, I've learned too to be more comfortable with taking pictures of myself. So I use my tripod a lot and I will go someplace and I don't mind, you know, just setting it up and taking a million photos and one of them will come out nicely. Um, because I think most people are very self-conscious and then they miss the opportunity, right? And they wish that they would have done it and they wish that they would have just not cared about what anybody said or people around them. And I like to not operate on that mentality. So if it's something where I know that I really want to capture the moment, I'm somewhere far away, like I'm going to really put myself out there and take the pictures. I mean, I remember being at the um, Czech Republic, which gets packed in Prague, and I was at the Lenin Wall, and they have, I mean, just dozens of people there at any point in time taking pictures. And I was like, no problem. I'm going to set up the timer. Then I'm going to run and take three pictures at a time, come back, check it out, and then go back and forth. People looked at me like I was crazy, but I will never see any of them again. And I have like 50 pictures from the Lenin Wall that came out really nice. So some of these areas that you're traveling to are high um and i'm not disparaging prague at all but i mean other countries as well they're high pickpocket high theft sort of areas how do you feel about putting setting your camera up on a tripod that's worth a fair bit of money and then stepping away from it even if it's a couple of feet to take a timed photo that's a good question i think i kind of take I think I take kind of stock or maybe I'll have somebody at that point if it's like uh, somebody that I maybe will have met along the way, mm. a friend I would have made. Um, during that particular day, I, I was at, that was for a conference that was in Prague. So I did have a friend that was a travel blogger friend that was with me. Um, so when I stepped away, she was able to make sure the camera was fine. But I've used tripods in other settings sometimes being in a more secluded setting. So like if I'm on a beach somewhere, you know, I can at least have some time, some reaction time versus like a crowded city street. Um, sometimes I will not use my camera. I'll use something like a phone. And that's why I use a phone. I think it's more portable, more accessible. Most people have a smartphone nowadays. Um, and, and I pick people wisely if I like give my phone to a person. Like I look to see if they're like with a family or something, you know, like it's unlikely they're going to take my phone and run and then leave their kids and their wife behind. So um, those are all things that I take into account uh, when I'm alone. And I think that in general, I have some background in, in unsafe cities. So I've like grew up in Philadelphia and I went to law school in Baltimore. So I try to be very careful with like looking like a tourist and um, just being careful with when I walk and when I go and do things. And I try to be out, you know, during daylight hours, if I'm outside at night, I try to be on an organized tour or activity with other people that I'll meet while traveling. Um, so I take precautions. Okay. So, so you are sort of hyper aware of your surroundings. Oh yes. At all times. Yeah. Okay. You, you posted about Belize and in your comment, you said you survived. <laughs> what happened um a lot of things happened I have Belize was great there was a there's a lot of really great moments in Belize uh and then a lot of really interesting moments as well um so they have a very interesting system outside of San Pedro where um it's like taking a golf cart on a moon for 
um, you know, just about an hour. So an hour of like potholes and like the golf cart really shaking from side to side, losing my luggage from how vigorously it was shaking all in the dark with a ton of mosquitoes while trying to get to my resort. That was fun. Um, in the pitch black. Um, but other than that, uh, swimming with sharks, you know, also very interesting. My first time doing that there, nurse sharks, but still my mother always says, cause she's from the Caribbean. So she's like, you know, the ocean doesn't have gates. And if you're putting out chum or if you have a group of fish, guess what's going to come to eat that group of fish? Um, so for me, that was definitely a big risk. I know for Australians, every day is a walk on the wild side just by stepping outside. Um, oh, it's not that bad. Everyone, <laughs> everyone's like, everything's going to eat you here. And it's like most, most of the things actually are scared of humans and they just sort of, you know, slither away or... or you, you know what to look for and you just don't go near them. It's not that bad. Everyone freaks out. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I recall being in the museum and being like, oh, deadliest spider in the world, native to here. Oh, deadliest snake in the world. Oh, lives here. <laughs> I think I think we've got the top three or five deadliest snakes, but that's okay. They're mostly scared of us. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> when you come and do your big van trip around Australia, I'll give you a crash course, Jen. You'll be fine. <laughs> I would really appreciate that. Thank you so much because I would just lose my mind if there was anything like a spider or something. It would just be me just looking at it, staring off by myself in the middle of the camper van with a spider. (laughs) You're going to get spiders, but but they're fine. (laughs) Basically, the bigger and hairier they are, they eat the insects. They're the good ones. They look like a, they're called a huntsman. They're like a, um, like a tarantula-y thing, but they don't, they're fine. But they're the ones that everyone freaks out about. You're like, oh, well, you know, you want them in the house because they eat the mosquitoes and the moths, so they're fine. <laughs> like that's a really, that's a, that's a really keen distinction to make and we need to really be clear on which ones we're allowing in that look like tarantulas. <laughs> you can just nickname them, it's fine. <laughs> Harry the Huntsman. <laughs> coming to your bed so what in terms of um let's go back to the Belize story so when you were in Belize and swimming with the sharks and all that kind of stuff is that is it more activities that you're actually seeking out yourself where you found yourself in um uncomfortable situations or have you been in situations that have sort of come up and you go oh I feel really unsafe I'm traveling by myself here Oh, and the bus ride from Belize to Cancun. I completely forgot about that, Fiona. I mean, so I took a bus from uh, Belize to Cancun overnight because it was the easiest way to transport between the two. It just worked out that that was what I needed to do. And that was definitely sketchy. Um, So I was like the only female on the bus and like the bathroom wasn't working and there's maybe like three Mm. other big men and then like the man driver and... And I don't know, like there was a point where I like moved my things and somebody got a row closer. And so I was definitely hyper aware, like I'm not going to be sleeping on the bus, even though it's an overnight trip, any of that. Um, And then when I got to Cancun, which Cancun airport is like scam central. I love Mexico. I love Mexico, but Cancun airport is tough um, because they will just try to get you for every penny that you have. And so I got there and I was going to get a rental car and I 
know that the rental car will come and pick me up for free because they're located on the premises. I just have to take the shuttle. And somebody tried to, you know, charge me like $80 to get to the rental car place that was on the premises, you know, trying to get me to go to the ATM, you know, all kinds of stuff, like getting me from the bus the moment I stepped off from Belize to try to get me into a taxi, all kinds of things. So it was, that was definitely sketch. And that was definitely at five in the morning where you have limited people around. So it helps in that case. I find I have really good luck looking my most unattractive, which is not hard in those frazzled situations, (laughs) right? I have really frizzy hair. My eyes bulge out when I'm like, (laughs) when I'm angry and um, I can wear, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And, And I can wear really, you know, kind of dowdy, like, hoodie clothing things like that so I try to look my most kind of like don't approach me look um I'm definitely not wearing makeup I'm definitely not wearing jewelry I'm definitely not making any effort to hide like bags under my eyes anything like that like I'm just going full-on like raw like um and that helps I mean it's definitely a deterrent I mean it draws less attention than it does if you're a female that's very well put together and when it's situations like that where I know I want to you know sit back um that'll happen. We also had an issue with crossing the Mexico border where one of the men dropped his underpants. Um, so that was interesting too. Um, but we made it. Oh, hang on. Hang on. You can't skip over that story, Jen. What, what <laughs> so you have to cross like an airport security type of thing at the Mexico border, even if you're coming by car and you have to pay um, a certain amount of money to go through and everything. And so they check everybody's bags and I guess they checked this man's bag and um, something like he didn't zip it all the way up. So when he walked off, something fell. And so all of a sudden the agent started laughing. It was a female agent who previously was looking, you know, she was using my tactics and looking as rough as possible. Um, And then, (laughs) and she, when she saw it, she just couldn't help it. And she started giggling. And then she told like her other female agent friend, and they both started giggling and they both wanted to call to the man to pick it up. But it was very obvious, like Calvin Klein briefs or something. And they didn't want to help him pick up his panties. Um, And so I had to be the one who picked up and went, you know, the underwear and went, sir, sir, you dropped your underpants. (laughs) Spamiso. <laughs> I was on a I was on a flight from um I think it was on a, I think it was from uh Rome to um Dubai or somewhere in the Middle East. And um I had this gentleman that was rather large in the aisle next uh, he was in the seat on the other side of the aisle next to me and he got up but he didn't have his pants done up. And he was so large that he couldn't bend down and pick them up as they fell. And he was (gasps) facing me. (laughs) So I had, because I was (gasps) seated, his crutch right in his wide fronts. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Needless to say, I was not impressed. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So I thought it was going to be one of those stories in terms of the underpants. I didn't think. Well, thankfully, I have not been scarred for life in the same manner that you have. It was quite, it was quite scarring, and uh, he, <laughs> yeah, that was fun. He was yelling at his wife to pick up his pants while he was standing in the aisle of the aircraft. Somebody, please pick him up. It wasn't funny at the time, but it was funny afterwards. I had a good laugh afterwards. 
<laughs> as long as they're not your underpants. <laughs> it, was, it was nighttime outside and I was trying to be very interested in, in the night sky outside the play window because I didn't want to look at it. Is that the North Star? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just the wing light on the plane. <laughs> Have you always travelled alone or have you travelled with friends as well? Um, I've travelled with friends before. I think my thing was just that as I got older and friends went down different paths or different careers or different states, it became harder to coordinate with them and get them to take time off, to buy a flight deal whenever it came up, which usually required you booking pretty quickly so you didn't miss it or the prices didn't go up. So as I realised that people were... They'd say that they were interested in trips, but it would be harder to coordinate. And I didn't really want to limit myself to just like one trip a year, one big girls trip, you know, and, and have that even in and of itself be a chore. Like I wanted to really enjoy traveling and I didn't want to have to wait for someone else to give me that permission or, or you know, approval to go with me. So I just decided I'm going to try it alone. But my first trip that I, um, so right before that year, my right before my 29th year where I did the 12 trips in 12 months, I had done six trips the year before, which kind of helped me see that I could do this. And the first trip that year was with a friend. We went to Spain and that was lovely. We went for, you know, our idea of a long trip, which is six days. And then when I came back, I really enjoyed it. So I decided to do some solo trips alone. I booked a trip to Machu Picchu and I climbed Machu Picchu by myself. And I was like, this was awesome. And I'm so glad that I did this and I didn't you know, wait, that I, that I did this now, that I have this memory to speak of, that I took the time, that I came all the way out here, and here I am in Machu Picchu, you know, at the top of Wanapichu, watching the fog clear out over the ruins, and I did that. Um, and so after that, I went to Rocky Mountain National Park. I took, you know, some hiking things there um, and a couple other places, and I just started to realize that I enjoyed traveling on my own and that I could get as much, if not more, joy out of really – it's travel, right? It's not vacation so much because I'm not just sitting there relaxing in a spa or on a beach. Like I'm going to learn about new cultures and places and things and be active. And to me, that's really exciting. How have you gone now with your business with COVID? So I have been pivoting. It's definitely been interesting also because I'm in Puerto Rico now. So um, if I had been, which has been interesting. So I feel slightly more insulated from everything that's happening right now in the U.S., but also um, just also isolated at the same time because I have friends who are in the travel space that are able to work with destinations and tourism boards now at the last minute to help kind of promote some of their local activities or things of the sort and I am unable to do that because I'm geographically restricted to an island so it's my first time experiencing that and so because of that I've really been pivoting and I don't mind it I'm okay 100% staying indoors I work online my mom was actually joking she's like everybody's in corona but for you absolutely nothing has changed like, you know, like we used to uh, wonder, you know, if you ever go outside more than once a, a week to just go and buy food. Um, and so for me, that was always kind of already what I was doing as a digital entrepreneur. And now I was able, if anything, to hone in and really try to get things done without the distraction of traveling, which was disruptive, right? I would travel at least twice a month and it'd be great. And I have no regrets and I love traveling. I'm so glad now that I did, especially now that we can't as much as we could. Um 
but it took a toll on me, like getting up at 2 a.m. to catch a flight at 5 a.m. from San Juan to then get on a plane, like almost always resulted in me getting physically sick from that. And then I have to land at a destination and go and dine at a restaurant that I'm going to be reviewing for my site. So I have to like get it together and get my appetite back and all of that um, and be, you know, presentable for a DMO and a tourism board that's trying to have me there and show me the best of their area in a very short period of time. It's a lot. And so honestly, I appreciate the slight reprieve and the ability to actually sit down and get done with my longstanding projects. Um, I wrote my fourth book. I've been working on helping people make money online, which is something that I've been trying to do a little bit more of. I mentioned the self-publishing course I'm working on um, and, and things of the sort. So that's been a good shift for me. Where do people find your courses? Is it your website? Yes. So for now, um, right now I've been doing webinars first, uh, just trying to gauge interest of where everybody's at. We had a really successful TikTok webinar last week. We had more than 30 people sign up. Um, and I just talk about how, you know, you can use the platform to market your brand. So I was able to grow, I just crossed 70,000 followers today. Um, and I'm getting, yeah, in, in like three months that I've been using the platform, which is crazy. And numbers wise, your, the algorithm is just so much more generous than other social media platforms in that I have videos from, you know, a month, two months ago that are still going viral, that are still bringing me views. Um, and they click through. So you're allowed to have a link in bio and I've used it to promote my books when my most recent book launched. Um, and so I've just been kind of seeing what the interest is. So I know definitely TikTok and self-publishing are two courses I will be working on. I'm hoping they'll be out in September. I'm still finalizing the platform, but you'll definitely be able to find information about them on my website, jenonajetplane.com. What have you learned about yourself through the travel? Because I find that when I traveled by myself in my early 20s, I found that I was a lot more self, you know, discovered that I was a lot more self-aligned on myself and I had built that confidence. What have you learned in regards to your travel aspect of things? I learned to pack light. (laughs) (laughs) And you think that that's a lesson you'd learn the first time, but then just like two years ago, I made the same dumb mistake coming to that conference in Europe thinking, oh, I'm going to so many different climates. I have to bring enough like athletic clothes and enough, you know, outfits for leisure. And then next thing you know, I'm hauling around a 75 pound bag in the middle of Cinque Terre that has cobblestone streets, no taxis and the hotels like two miles away. <laughs> so we went, to, we went to Italy uh, last year. Um, and I said to my husband, cause I, I have previously traveled when I was single a lot in Italy and he was like oh suitcases so we can wheel them and I was like everything's cobblestones we need a backpack yes <laughs> yeah yes these are the things you don't know until you know and then you'll really learn it the hard way no place has elevators either so good luck getting it up a couple flights of stairs um so that was fun I came back that poor suitcase had no wheels left it was completely dead but um, so well, yeah because I, I just destroyed all the cobblestones it was really it was really bad it was new before I left but um it lived a good life I guess it went to Italy some suitcases just sit in a closet and um, and I've learned that I am able to learn things so I 
don't get intimidated by public transportation. I don't get intimidated by anything public because it's just that. It's meant to be publicly accessible. And I think a lot of people get intimidated by having to find their way around the new city, having to deal with things like that. And I'm just like, listen, even if the subway map is in German or in Dutch, like it's you're gonna it's gonna tell you that name of that Dutch stop. You compare it to what it says on the paper, and if it's the same thing, that's where you get off. It's the same way. Subway maps work the same way no matter where you are in the world, right? And so realizing that there is that kind of like universality, and if you're able to get around one city, you can figure your way around most of them. Um, and then also that I that I enjoy planning. Like I really get a kick out of being on top of things and. I think I had, a, I had a, I knew somebody that went to Greece and she went during the reduced hours during the winter that the Parthenon closes early and she made it all the way to Athens and only had like one day there and didn't get to see the Parthenon. And to me, that was something that was just like, I will never forget that because I was just like, that will never be me. I will never make it all the way to Athens and not get to see something like the Parthenon. So I really plan very thoroughly about the main things I want to see when I go somewhere. I get advanced tickets, you know, and Frank House. I was in and out in less than an hour and other people were still just barely getting through their first turn in the line at that point, you know. Um, and I love that. Like I really love doing the fast pass and having your advanced tickets and having planned it out and having just being a researcher. Um, so I get a kick out of it and it really suits me in my solo travel. With you planning so much, do you find though that you don't allow for the unexpected to come up and sort of have that element of the trip? Because you meet, when you're traveling, sort of you meet people and they recommend things and you go, well, I'll go check that out. Or I plan to go do this. They go, oh, that was really rubbish. Don't don't bother about that go here instead do you find that with you micro planning everything in your trip do you find that you don't allow for those experiences I only plan the big things I know I want to see so how I plan is I'll do a puzzle kind of thing and I'll be like okay if I'm going to Florence I know I want to see the statue of David I know I want to go to the Duomo I know I want to try what people say is the best gelato in the city and I'll put all of this down and then I'll try to have maybe one or two of my things that I know I want to hit a day that I already have scheduled. And then in between, I'll have that unexpected time, that meandering time, if I want to take a nap, if I meet someone along the way, um, and I can kind of adapt there. So I've had a lot of things that pop up. Like in Florence, I had no idea. I scheduled myself to go to an opera and I had no idea when I went to the opera there that it was going to be well, first, that I was going to be the first one there because American time is not the same thing as Florence time. So I was <laughs> early for American time, which meant I was like two hours before the opera started. Um, <laughs> and um, so because of that, I ended up making friends with the people who run the opera. because They're like, what's this random American girl doing here? Because also people my age don't really listen to opera, I guess. Um, and so they were like, what is she doing here? And is she lost? And then I was like, no, I'm here. I really want to hear opera. I'm so excited. Tell me more about this, you know, venue. And before you know it, uh, we ended up becoming friends. They actually ended up stopping the opera halfway through in the intermission to dedicate a song to me. Um, yeah. So a lot of really sweet things I think do come up and I, I welcome that. I think that's what I, what I call the magic of solo travel because you are alone and because you don't have a buffer 
you are 100% receptive to your new surroundings and what the people around you have to offer you. And you're not, you know, just quick to cut them off or go back to talking to your partner with the language that you both speak together and kind of not necessarily engaging. So I think that there's great things to be said about traveling with others. And I think it's a great bonding experience with that person that you're traveling with. But when you're traveling alone, it's almost like an experience with you and the place. Mm. Mm. I watched a TED talk of yours, which was fabulous, by the way. And you you. were talking about um, in your 20s, how you were seeing everybody getting married and having kids and sort of living that um, expected societal path that people sort of end up taking and how it wasn't sort of working out with you. What was there a point where you sort of said like enough? Cause in that talk, it sort of, it seemed like there was a bit of a, a line that you drew in, that you drew in the sand and said, I've had enough of sort of going down this path. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that year before my, 29th birthday I was dating I was going through tinder and I had been dating a guy who was in med school I wrote an article in the Huffington Post about him why I quit dating to travel the world full-time and uh he later contacted me and I was like oh I didn't even respond I just put the link and he said something like oh I'll read that link when I have time and I'm like I literally quoted you in the first art like the first line this was my moment of revenge and you didn't even click to read it you self-absorbed fool (laughs) you didn't say fool it's okay I understand what you really did Trying to keep it PG for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the internet, Dan, we can say what we want. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that was in and of itself was all frustrating. And that's what I've learned. Like, you have to give closure to yourself. You have to do things for yourself because you will have these idiots who just don't even get it when you've literally written an article about them in a huge publication that's been shared and translated in multiple different languages, but you can't even be bothered to click it. So that guy, he was a winner. And he, um, (laughs) he was just, he was in med school. He had failed this exam like three times. And he, I had thought to myself, you know, like, like a girl thinks to herself when she's approaching 30 and trying to narrow down from this pool of dwindling applicants. Right. So I thought to myself, well, he's got solid prospects. Like he made it into medical school. He's not exceeding. He's not passing this exam. But maybe with some help, which is what every woman thinks, maybe if I can help him, then he can do better. I can fix you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'll be different with me. I can fix you. <laughs> mentality. Um, that is just ridiculous. And so I put like six months into this guy of just like making him meals so that he could help study and doing flashcards. I made him his own little doctor game like we would play a board game i mean it was just unbelievable you were all in, you were all in. <laughs> it really was and i had just been thinking... it's a seriously dwindling prospect <laughs> to make board games for him. it was rough mind you too i was in naples florida so this was like a famously retirement town like so everybody this okay. was also maybe the only eligible bachelor under the age of 50 or 60 oh so he was so, highly sought after. Exactly. You were you were fighting the other women off. <laughs> yes, and so um exactly. And sometimes men too. And so it really was tough competition. So <laughs> and so I had to get creative. And so I did my best. I, I put my best foot out there. But in the end of the day, he was just so selfish. And 
what I, what my kind of selfish thing too, and what I kind of wanted out of it was I wanted a new year's where I could finally have a new year's, right? Where I could just kiss somebody at midnight. I don't have to kiss some random strangers. If they're watching my friends kiss themselves or eat ice cream by myself in my room, watching the ball drop on TV. Like I just wanted a normal Sorry, Bridget Jones, I'm sorry of you. <laughs> exactly right. And I, no. It, it, it is what it is, but that's why I don't like that holiday. At least they have anti-Valentine's Day holidays, but there's no anti-New Year's. And so um, I've had to, my, and my cure for that was learning now. Every New Year, I'm on, a, I'm on a flight somewhere or I'm somewhere on the way because there's no New Year's countdowns on airplanes because everybody's in a different time zone. Some people are sleeping. So I like to be usually somewhere over the Atlantic come midnight, shipping you know, champagne and thinking about where I'm going to start the new year. Um, but before that, when I still had these dumb Bridget Jones's diary hopes, um, I, I thought that this guy was going to like, it, that all of this, the pinnacle of all of this would be like him asking me to be his girlfriend and us going and spending New Year's together. And so I had bought Wait, a... you weren't even, you weren't even together when you were doing these board games for him? So he was very clear that he like wasn't ready to commit to somebody because he was, oh. but that he was, we were like, he wasn't seeing anybody else, but he just wasn't ready to put a title on it or introduce me to his family or any of that. These are all dumb things. I know this now. <laughs> I'm quite a wonderful thing, Jen. You were, you were, you were um, invested though. <laughs> I was, I thought this might be my last chance to land a hot doctor, which at the time I know sounds horrible, but you know, these are the things that they teach women to, you know, lust after and, and want hmm. um, these status symbols and somebody who looks a certain way. And, and he was very good looking. Um, and, you know, I think he did end up becoming a doctor. I just could care less at this point. Um, but, um, you know, good for you. Congratulations. You want a cookie? Um, but <laughs> for me, you know, I finally passed the test, but for me, it's not a big deal anymore, but at the time it was. And so when I realized that he just, after all of that, I bought tickets for us both to New Year's to New York and he just kind of ghosted me and he just didn't, you know, message me anymore. He was just like, I'm really busy with school, all this, even knowing I had bought the tickets and everything. And so I found myself with two tickets to New York on New Year's and then like this dread of, again, spending New Year's this way and not just any New Year's, but like starting off the last year of my 20s. And I believe that how you start the year is really important for like setting the tone for the rest of your year. So I didn't want to spend it, you know, sad. And that's when I decided to trade in, you know, his ticket to try to see if I can get the ticket to Athens. And then I made the beeline from New York to Athens. And I spent my first trip of the 12 trips in 12 months and my birthday at the Parthenon. That's that's a pretty awesome ending to the story, though. <laughs> it was a great day. I Oh, my goodness. It was like the universe was just really throwing everything it had at me. Um there was a really kind old man who I asked to take a photo of me and cause he looked really unassuming and I figured I could outrun him if I needed to get my phone back. Um, and he, <laughs> <laughs> that's so like when you travel and you get someone like, I can chase this person down if they run. <laughs> exactly. So I, and you just, you, you gotta take your pros and your cons, right? If he's older, chances are he's not going to know how to use the iPhone as well, but maybe one of the photos will come out. Good. You're, you're taking your risks here. 
Um, and so I, I did, and, and he ended up being from the island, and he invited me for coffee to tell me, like, these legends, these Greek island legends that was just really entertaining. Um, and he was just somebody, and he's like, thank you for the company. Like, I really wanted to share this. I'm glad I got to share the stories with you. And I'm just like, the universe is sending everything special my way today. Um, and I went to the Parthenon Museum, and I met with a guide there, um, Faye Giorgio. I remember her name. That's how fabulous she was. Um, and she is just this tiny dynamo, a PhD, like she knows everything there is to know about Athens history and everybody at the Parthenon Museum knew her. So even though I was running late because of my coffee date, unexpected, you know, things unexpected happen with the guy and I was running late for her, like we actually got to stay a little bit later at the museum because she knew the guide. So they would like let her pass the ropes and let her stay a little bit longer. Um, and then afterwards she took me down to the train stations and showed me areas that are like live excavation sites right now in the train station tunnels and then took me wow. to my favorite. Yeah. Like so many cool things. I was like, this is the best tour ever. This is way better than like follow the flag in the museum, you know, with a group of 30 people. I'm so glad that I splurged to get this private tour with her. Um, and, and it was worth every penny. And that was a great, and it was maybe like $80 for that tour for the two or three hours. And it was just so worth it because of her knowledge and her connections and her passion for history. If you go through that museum, otherwise you're just going to be like, Oh, old vase, Oh, old thing, you know, like no big deal. But when you go through with somebody who knows what they're talking about, it's like, wow, <laughs> I can't believe we're this close to this. I think it, it definitely puts a different, um, perspective on what you're seeing when you have that level of expertise yeah and I'm a nerd well when like when you travel and you go through the museum and it's like oh another religious painting Mm -hmm. another religious painting and they're all gold you know and then they go oh well this is a Rembrandt or whatever and you go oh yeah (laughs) this is you know still and you're like oh it's particularly when you sort of look at ancient structures as well I find that that sort of energy of the place you kind of pick up and it's yeah it's fascinating so I'm so glad that you had what was a a terrible failed situation with the doctor turning into such an amazing um, experience and really sort of I think sounds like it kicked off your travel bug sort of a thing like you really sort of got the the feel for travel and you went, I, I just have to keep doing this Yeah, because I realized that I was happy traveling and that when I was traveling, I was in the moment, right? I wasn't so worried about anything that happened in the past. I wasn't anxious about getting married or having children in the very near future um, or manufacturing that outcome. I just was enjoying what was coming to me. I was taking in a new location and having fun experiences and really going to sleep being like, wow, that was a great day. Like that was something so cool that I'll always remember. And I treasured that feeling. And that's what then after a while, my, my brother asked me one day, cause I was coming back from a trip and I was like, Oh, I felt so good. Like I just love, I feel like I just radiate light when I travel from how much I love it. And he's like, why don't you just try to be that way all the time? And I was like, why don't I, <laughs> why don't I try to, at what stage did you did you realize I can actually make a full-time living out of this and do this full-time? 
Um, so at that point then, before I quit my job, I decided to write my first book. My first book was on affordable flights. It was not what I thought was going to be my first book. Um, I thought my first book was going to be some eat, pray, love type of memoir, which I would still like to write, but I realized that as a businesswoman, you kind of have to give the people what they want. And the people kept asking me how I was finding all these cheap flights. So I just decided to put all of my knowledge together into a book and market it and learn what I could about book marketing. Like I listened to every book marketing podcast, Kindlepreneur, like the Sell More Book Show, and they were so helpful to me. And I would just spend, you know, hours on end just learning what I could about self-publishing. And I thought, all right, I got this. I have an audience. I have people that want to know. I'll do the launch team. I'll, you know, write it. I'll edit it, um, get the cover. And... Then I launched it. It did really well. It became a bestseller in like eight categories. Um, it became a 2018 Reader's Favorite Award winner. So I won, you know, an award with my first book that my mom, I remember when I told her this, because I was disappointed um, that it wasn't as high of an award, you know, because me, I'm very ambitious and crazy sometimes. And my mom was like, Jed, do you realize that there are people who do this for their career that don't win awards? And you should win an award with your first book. You should be very excited and you should be very happy. And so even though it wasn't necessarily the most lucrative um, with books and it's still, you know, you have to really write a lot of books to make that into a good steady income stream, um, which is something that I'm just now starting to see after my fourth book, um, it still was a proof of concept. And it showed that there was a demand for what I knew and that I could really make a go of this. Where can people find your books now? On Amazon. You can just search. There's different Amazons for all the countries. So you can just search Jen Ruiz on Amazon and they should all come up. The first three books were on travel. And I wanted to debunk the, the, the excuses that people use to not travel. So the first one was unaffordable flights because most people say they can't afford a $2,000 flight, you know, especially if they're traveling with more than one person. Um, so I was just teaching people how to get $300, $400 round trip flights anywhere. Um, then the second book was on traveling with a full-time job. So for anyone saying that they couldn't afford, you know, to take time off, they couldn't really take time with their demanding job, talking about my tips and tricks. And actually I'm going to be working on a second edition of that, that kind of integrates how you can transition to remote work and have more flexible, um, just jobs in general now with everything that we're going through. And then the third book was on the solo, the solo female travel guide. And it was about solo female travel, everything you need to know to survive on your own. Definitely the way I do things. So not through a tour group, although discussing some female driven tours that I do um, kind of work with and approve of and, and know of through different travel conferences. But for me, I, I like planning. I like the flexibility of being able to choose the daily tours or activities that you go on, you know, to choose if you want to do a certain experience, but to really tailor it. And I think that that's the best way to get the most bang for your buck, because inherently any tour that you have scheduled for the entirety of your trip is going to upcharge you for the convenience of organizing everything for you, right? So I just think for people sometimes, like here in Puerto Rico, sometimes people come and they go to the Bacardi factory and they'll go, and I don't want to, you know, this maybe makes me a poor affiliate in some sense, but they'll go to one of these uh, tour sites and they'll get a cruise port to the Bacardi factory tour for $80, but it maybe costs $20 to get there on an Uber and $10 admission. So you could have saved $50 per person and it's essentially the same journey. Um, and those are the kind of things that I actually try to share with my readers because I think it empowers them and it makes them feel like they're uh, knowledgeable and they're more able to take, you know, trips because they're not 
being taken advantage of and taken, you know, spending all of their money on the one trip that they take a year. They're able to take more than that because they can spread their resources further. So what's next, Jen? What's next for you're in a corona situation, you're doing your webinars um, and your books that you're doing. What what's sort of next for you? A lot of different things. I've actually really been enjoying this new remote work um, pivot, and I think it came at the right time. So that book that just came out in April was 25 Ways to Work from Home, and I've been exploring lots of different methods there myself um, with the courses that I'm developing, um, with possibly a YouTube channel that I'm starting. I've, you know, TikTok has been a big emphasis of, of mine, and it's been a place where I've been able to post without feeling like I have to go back to the travel highlight reel from three years back or to post a perfectly curated picture. Um, I can just post kind of real content and knowledge. So I'd like to transition more towards inspiring people to pursue unconventional lifestyles. Um, I love traveling, uh, but I think that it's something that for the next year, maybe year and a half is going to be limited uh, for everyone. And, and it's going to be different before we get back to the way that we know. So how can people adapt? How can they really find an upside in the situation? How can they come out of the situation stronger, more educated, with more resources, more opportunities? Um, and so I also launched a nonprofit here in Puerto Rico called People of Puerto Rico, where I'm helping locals establish online income streams so that they're not as dependent on foot traffic and to, can take existing inventory and, you know, sell it online and just use their skill set to make money in a way that's not dependent on, you know, the number of tourists that are on the island at any point in time. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you. So we'll see where it goes. Is that something that you've always wanted to do? That not-for-profit part of it? I knew when I left my legal job that I wanted to start my own nonprofit. I just didn't know what it was because I guess I like being, I like to just have my own autonomy and I like to just know that I'm doing my own thing. I can set my own hours and I, I knew I wanted to, I've always enjoyed helping people and I've always enjoyed working in that field. So I didn't want to abandon it completely and I didn't want to not use my legal knowledge. Um, and it was just a matter of figuring out what cause appealed to me. I've been drawn to a lot of causes with women in general and, and just helping women become uh, more empowered. And I think finances do that. So I think if you help somebody, you know, form a business, if you help somebody see that their idea can be, you know, valid and worthwhile and valued and paid for, that really does wonders for a community. So I'm not limiting it to women specifically, but I would like to do so with the goal of empowering women, particularly in this community, and hopefully with the ability to then have a model that I can spread and use in other places around the world. I'm glad that you said that because I was actually about to mention that it's actually a very scalable model in terms of empowering um, not just women but anybody to be able to, to work from home I think is a, is a fantastic um, opportunity, particularly in this current climate. Absolutely. Um, I pick Puerto Rico because they have the U.S. Postal Service. They have pretty decent internet. So it's all the makings where it shouldn't be difficult to ship products, to, you know, get online. Everybody should be able to use their smartphone. And then hopefully if I can get a good enough model, then we can use that same kind of accessibility where everybody has a smartphone nowadays all over the world to use these kind of apps to form businesses, Airbnb experiences, Etsy, different e-commerce shops uh, that people can use and form from their mobile devices, from their laptops, and run their own businesses 
or supplement and augment their existing businesses that would otherwise just be sitting there affected with unable to move inventory. And I think people have to get creative. There's a um, tour guide here in the southwest part of the island where she normally does tours. And so she decided to go virtual and she did a coffee box. And she put together like a sampling coffee box of different coffees from the farm and a brand new tour where she goes through the farm and introduces everybody to the coffee and people sample it from their homes while they walk through with her. So that was a really creative, quick thinking pivot. And she charged $80 per box and she had a lot of interest. So she was able to stay afloat during the time where she had no tours coming in. Uh, and I think that that's something that smart business models really have to start learning what to do because we just don't know when things are going to return you know, to normal 100%. I have two questions to finish our chat today. Jen, your favorite travel destination and also the most dangerous country that you've traveled to? My favorite one is hard, but I would say that since you've seen that I'm, I'm very much a planner, I really enjoyed being in the south of France because it was one of the few places where I could just let go. Um, mm -hmm. I could relax. I really, I don't think I even knew what relaxation was until I found myself floating in the middle of the Lac de Saint-Croix in like a Tuesday afternoon oh <laughs> and being like, that sounds delightful. It was, I was just, it was transcendent almost. I feel like my body was tingling and I was like, why have I never tried this relaxing thing before? <laughs> <laughs> what all the fuss yeah. is about. This is fabulous. I will never forget this feeling. <laughs> um, so I really, as, as you know, it's kind of stereotypical as it sounds, South of France is really a paradise for me, particularly in the summer, particularly with those turquoise blue waters, the lavender fields. It was just so intoxicating and aromatic, just wonderful. Um, so that's my favorite trip. And it was a trip that I paid good money to go to. I didn't care if I had a flight deal or not. I knew that for that year, frolicking in lavender fields in France that July was going to be a big bucket list item for me. Mm. So that was a big, Fabulous. yeah, and no regrets. <laughs> <laughs> did you have a, did you have a nice burgundy or a glass of champagne as you were frolicking in the uh, lavender fields? Oh yes, absolutely. I did. Um, <laughs> while singing Beauty and the Beast tunes. I mean, it was just really my best life. <laughs> <laughs> so every cliche you could possibly think of you managed to wrap into that bucket list moment it was wonderful <laughs> bonjour, bonjour. Oh, good on you good on you <laughs> Um, and that you gotta get through you gotta get them out of the way before you can do the off the beaten path experiences you, you know you have to you have to so i felt fulfilled and um, then I'd say the most dangerous, unfortunately, was Buenos Aires for me, uh, Argentina. I had a tough time there. And that, I think, was also partly my fault because I feel slightly more confident in Spanish-speaking countries because I speak the language. I'm maybe slightly less aware. But there were just right off the bat, like when I landed, I got in the, in the taxi and we went to my hotel. And I knew I gave him a certain amount of money because that's how much money I had taken out from the ATM. And he insisted I had given him um, less money than I did and gave me back change for a smaller bill. Um, and so that was like my first scam. And I was like, okay, well, no big deal. We'll keep going. But there was just so many other things that happened there. And that was a tough city. Um, and I'm not one, but I just left with a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth. I had an Uber driver that on the way out that tried to like, that pulled the car over and tried to robot un beso, which is like steal a kiss. 
Um, so that was, yeah, that was terrible. And I really just wanted to get out of there. So at that point, I got all of my like big city training in and I, I had been in self-defense classes in law school. And so part of self-defense is not aggravating the aggressor, especially in this case, somebody who was like 250 pounds and is in control of the vehicle, which I'm driving in a place that I don't know where I am, right? We're in the side of a highway. So best way to get out of this would be to placate him, try to see what we can do. So at that point, once he pulled over, I was like, okay, great. You got a kiss. Can we go now? I have to like go to the airplane. Like I'm going to miss my flight. And I got to the airport and I rinsed my mouth out with soap. I called friends at like two in the morning, every single one of which picked up the phone. And I did my own kind of dealing with that on the way out, really being fortunate, knowing that as violated as I felt, like it really was uh, it could have been much worse. And I was lucky to be, you know, where I was, I felt like, you know, worst case scenario, like you've kissed worse frogs than this. Um, and so I really felt like I, you lucky to escalate, right? yeah, exactly. And that was why I really tried to keep it friendly instead of being like aggressive or fighting or slapping him or anything. I was just like, okay, great. Mm-hmm, you got what you want. Can we go now? Okay. I'm going to be late. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's annoying to have to do that, but that's what I figured was my best defense because one good swing and I'm out, right? Like I'm not necessarily Mike Tyson. I'm not going to be able to withstand fighting a grown man. So what's my best way out of this? Outsmart the grown man. That I can do. Mm. (laughs) That I can most definitely do. So how can I make him feel like he has got what he wanted? Like he's a, we're in a friendly spot, right? This is not a reason to be angry. So how can, it was just kind of, very quick thinking on my part, trying to see how I can get out of this with minimal damage. Um, and I'm I'm happy with the outcome. I feel like it could have been much worse. I was able to make it to the airport. You know, I was able to get on my flight and get out of Argentina. But after that, I really haven't had much urge to go back. Yeah, don't blame you. But I also don't blame, like, mm. I don't want to, you know, sour the whole country for other people. I just think Buenos Aires is a tough city. It's a one to be very highly aware of. And there in general, I did learn a tough lesson where, um, in, and they do this in a lot of countries where Uber isn't necessarily 100% sanctioned. So they ask you to sit in the front seat um, so that it's not, you know, suspicious when you get to the airport in Fort Lauderdale, they have this, you know, in, in America where they would pick you up from the airport and they want you to be in the front seat. So it looks like it's a friend picking you up and not Uber, which is why all these political regulations get me so upset when people try to ban Uber because you really are endangering a large portion of the population, but whatever. So, um, I learned that even if people insist that that's the case, I will still always get in the back seat because even just with having that extra divider, that reaction time distance is really important. So I, I'm like that now and I will not get in the front seat even if somebody asked me to. Well, Jen, good luck with your webinars and the books and everything. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Likewise. When you're in Australia, hit me up. We'll go have a glass of wine and have a chat and I'll uh, tell you what to look out for. <laughs> I would love that. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them.